0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Waffling Tailors. Um, with me, as always, is Squidgy. Hello, Squidgy. Hello, Squidgy. How are you, Squidgy? Hello, Squidgy. I will say you came through a little bit hot there, but that's fine. Um, but also with us is uh, Eben Upton of uh, the Raspberry Pi Foundation. How are you, Eben?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm good, all things considered.
0: <laughs> fantastic fantastic I'm, I'm mm. glad to hear that you
1: always kind of, you always got kind of to wonder when you ask that question these days what kind of answer you're going to get but yeah yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah as long as you're uh, as long as you're healthy and you're feeling okay then that's it's good. that's good right It's, good. <laughs> yeah, it's that, that conversation we had off air about um you know working for working for and alongside Americans as long as you say you have to be overly good yeah. you know
1: <laughs> mustn't mustn't grumble.
0: That's the one. (laughs) Excellent. Um, So uh, we're going to talk to Eben today about the Raspberry Pi and uh, a new book that's been released called Code the Classics. I believe Volume 1 is already out and Volume 2 is coming out soon, I think, but we'll come to that in a moment. Um, But for the people who listen to the show who may not know what the show is about, it is Quite literally, myself and Squidge talking nonsense about video games. Not always nonsense, but it usually <laughs> devolves into nonsense.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, that's essentially the show. Uh, but like I said today, we're going to talk to Evan. Um, Evan, um, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I've got you down here as the chief architect of the Raspberry Pi. And, yeah, I think uh, that
1: I think that'll do. Uh, yeah, that, that, <laughs> that, that's, that's plus or plus or minus. Uh, yeah, that's 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 about right still. <laughs> I'm always nervous. I'm always nervous about it because the, the 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 Raspberry Pi. I mean Raspberry Pi Four, which we launched last year. Um, there, there's a credits list. We always do a credits list when we when we launch a, a big new product, uh, and the credits list was over 300 people long before I started adding people who work for Raspberry Pi to it. So I'm always a little yeah. bit nervous about things like. Uh, oh. Um, uh, chief architect and stuff, um, but you know, chief chief cat herder, I suppose, is the. Uh,
0: <laughs> that's fair enough. So is that um, is that um, hardware contributions like design, or is that uh, software stuff? No, does- that's
1: everything. So that's that's hardware. That's hardware software. Uh, but when we say hardware, we mean both um, the board level hardware, but also the silicon um, that goes mm-hmm. onto the that goes onto the board. And you know, silicon programs in particular are are enormous efforts. Uh, with lots and lots of different people in lots of different specialties um, but yeah, it was remarkable uh, and I think I only missed i missed one person i mean, the, the terrible thing about the credits list is the people you leave off are much sadder than you know being put on the list makes you happy but being left off the list makes you very sad uh but I missed one person this time um so so that was that's good for me uh, that, that's, that's better than previous years
0: <laughs> uh, that's good then that's good uh, yeah i i uh, I run a number of open source software projects i guess and when it comes to people who've contributed and thinking thinking of how to credit them i i'm the same although it's on a very much smaller scale there's maybe six people who contribute to one of my biggest projects and uh forgetting someone is always something i worry about yeah Yeah. (laughs) um but yes uh so yeah we're going to be talking a little bit more about raspberry pi and code the classics and we're also hopefully if this time going to be talking about uh Dropping Evan off in the Thunder Plains and talking about what that is. Uh, but first, we thought we'd talk about, uh, like I said, the Raspberry Pi and code the classics. Now, for folks who don't know, uh, I'll let um, Evan introduce the Raspberry Pi properly in a moment. But my understanding, as someone who owns a couple of these things and uses them for a number of different reasons around the house, um, the Raspberry Pi—the way that I explain it to people who are non-technical—is it's a credit card-sized computer. Um, and then when I say to them, yeah, you can run on the latest version, you can run multiple monitors off of it and you can do practically anything you would do with a a desktop or a laptop computer. And they go, well, how much is it? And I say 25 pounds, 30 pounds, roughly. And they kind of lose their minds. <laughs> so, uh but I mean, that's my that's my ridiculous intro to the Raspberry Pi. Could you, um, Eben, for some of the people, because this is mainly a, a video gaming podcast, and I know that I'm a software developer, so I know a little bit more about it. But would you be able to give us a brief introduction to what the Raspberry Pi is?
1: Uh, well, you, well, you stole my material, so uh, it is like, <laughs> it's, it's a credit card-sized PC, right? Um, yeah. and, and I mean, the idea, so the idea behind Raspberry Pi is uh, I was a kid in the 1980s, and I grew up and all of my friends grew up surrounded by computers, many of which were bought to play games on, um, uh, but which were very programmable. So, you know, you get your Sinclair Spectrum, and you turn it on so you can play Manic Miner, um, uh, but the first thing that it gives you is a basic prompt. And so, if you want to go play a game on it, you kind of the first thing you're doing is you're making an active choice not to be a programmer. Um, and the idea with Raspberry Pi is um, the as those, you know, as say, the Spectrum was replaced by the Super Nintendo, um, uh, you went from these platforms which were programmable and quite encouraged you to become a programmer to platforms that weren't just non-programmable, but their whole entire design was built around being not programmable. You know, nobody, you know, in order to control the platform you know, games console platform holders have to make it impossible for anyone other than them and people they give licenses to to, uh, to, to, to program them. So you've kind of taken away this source of programmable hardware in children's lives. I became a computer programmer, not because I sat down one day and thought, oh, I want to be a computer programmer. I became a computer programmer because I had programmable hardware around me all the time. And so really the idea of Raspberry Pi, kind of about a decade ago now, the idea of Raspberry Pi was to say, well, nobody's getting involved in programming anymore. Um, if we make the world a little bit more like it used to be, maybe people will get involved in programming again. And so what we did was we set out to make a little programmable computer that was fun. It had to be fun. It wasn't supposed to be kind of like a worthy thing, you know, take your medicine. It was supposed to be a fun platform that you could do fun stuff on. And for me, that means games. Um, for other people, maybe that means video. Increasingly for people, that means things like robotics. Um, but we wanted to make a fun platform that we could then bundle a bunch of programming tools onto in the hope that young people would get involved in programming again. That's it. We've been doing it for a That's decade. Fantastic! Yeah, we've been doing it for a decade. It's gone through. Uh, uh, it's gone through five-ish generations of hardware. Um, the thing we're shipping now is about forty times as powerful as what we were shipping back in two thousand and twelve. It really is a PC. Well, we've always called ourselves a PC all the way along, even though the early devices it, were only really useful for a subset of the things that people do with PCs. The thing Raspberry Pi four, which is the thing we started selling last year, is the first one that really goes over that line to the point where. Where most people, the majority of non-power users, really won't perceive the difference between sitting in front of a Raspberry Pi and sitting in front of a, a, a traditional PC, a legacy PC.
0: That's pretty cool. I do like that. Like I say, I've got a, a number of them laying around in the house. I've got uh, I have one in the living room, which acts as a local media-only home theater PC. I've got um, one in the kitchen, one of the Raspberry Pi Zeros. Mm. I got that with the Raspberry Pi magazine. I, oh, you got I you got the,
1: the magazine? Did you buy it in the yeah, store? yeah. Or did That's you?
0: That's it. Yeah. Oh. What I did was, uh, I was on the train into work and saw it come up on my Twitter, got off of the train and ran to the WH Smiths in the train station and, uh, and grabbed it. And there was actually another person standing next to me going, you saw the tweet too. And we had, we each got the last issue of the magazine in the store. Wow.
1: Um, wow yeah. so so yeah the background just just for people who don't know the background for this was uh, if you make cheap enough we, we we publish a magazine called the magpie uh, about Raspberry Pi and if you make cheap enough computers and you have a magazine sooner or later you yield to the temptation to use the magazine as a cover uh, the, a computer as a cover gift for your magazine and we did that with with zero we have a wonderful collection of um, these little signs that WH Smith employees um, had made saying no we do not have any more copies of the magpie you generally misspelled and um, Please stop asking. Um, <laughs> kind of civil insurrection, uh, civil insurrection in, in the UK. As get their hands on, so I'm glad. I'm glad you were able to do it peacefully. That's uh, that, that's good.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. It was. It was. But this was like uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes after the tweet had gone out. It yeah. was madness like you couldn't I, I remember i got into work that day and i was like look i managed to get one and the 20 or so people that i work with were all really upset with me because they were like how i've they've passed five or six different news agents and stores along the way to work and none of them could find any and i come into arguably one of the biggest wh smiths in leeds city center in the train station. And there's one there for me.
1: And that one doesn't always, that, that, so I'm, so I grew up just outside Leeds, so I know that that Smith's very well, and that one doesn't always stock Magpie, so you were, uh, you were very lucky.
0: Mm-hmm. I was very lucky indeed, <laughs> but yeah, I've got that one, um, the, the plan is to set that one up in the kitchen as a uh, music player, mm-hmm. um, I've started working on a, a Xamarin app, which is a, net thing, Um, just an app that I can run on my phone, or if I change to an iPhone or whatever. Um, And the idea is that whilst I'm on the local network only, I can tell it, "Oh, play Bohemian Rhapsody, play um, I don't know Spice Girls or whatever," and it will just start playing because it's on the network, right?
1: That's a wonderful selection. That's a wonderful, wonderfully eclectic (laughs) musical musical taste you've got. Um, I would love to hear an Island (laughs) disc. It is an Island disc.
0: A bit, a bit questionable, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is indeed distressing that those were the, the only two that I could think of, but uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm also setting up um, one or two to be, um, uh, how can I put it? When when So the room that I'm in um, is currently, well, it was being renovated before the incident. Um, and the idea is once it's done, I'm going to set one up and then that way the kids can do, can come down and do their homework on it, mm. you know?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, and that's the thing we're seeing. That's the thing we're seeing a lot of, right? You know, you go on Amazon today, go on Amazon, try and buy a Chromebook. Um, you know, it's yeah. you know the 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 entire channel over the last two weeks has been sucked dry of hardware, um, and so what we're seeing a lot of now is we're seeing we're seeing parents buying them for their kids, not for uh, educate, not for. Not so they can learn about coding, but because they need a PC to do their schoolwork on. And we're seeing we're seeing corporates buying them. And, you know, you've sent all your workers home and you've got, you know, maybe you've got Citrix desktop, so you've got kind of the software infrastructures in place, but all of a sudden you can't find hardware for them. So we're seeing these, you know, we had our, in our second best month in March, you know, you would think, Mar- you would think that this would be a killer. But what we're seeing is, particularly with four, we're seeing people that people can actually do that. It's, 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 it's nice.
0: Excellent. That is that is amazing because, uh, like I say, I, I want to try and get the kids into programming by going, hey, here's Python. Let's learn it together because I don't know Python. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be something that you can just sort of boot up and do on Raspberry Pi pretty easily.
1: And it's the new basic, right? Python is the mm. new basic. You know, there was always it's always been this question when we say let's make it more like the 1980s, should we make it completely like the 1980s and use basic? Um, but of course, you know the world's moved on. But Python still has that. For me, the lovely thing about Python is that it has the approachability of basic, right, which is a uh, hello world is print hello world. You look at hello world in Java or in .net, you know, you have, you know, hang on, what's what system.out. uh what does that all mean? And so the first thing if you want to te- use those languages to teach someone as their first teaching experience, the first thing you have to do is you have to tell them, oh, ignore these lines. Uh, you don't. But look, here it is printing hello. We're here are 10 lines of voodoo in. Here it is saying hello, world. <laughs> Where Python, it's print hello, world. And then the nice thing is that you can – is. but there's no ceiling. With basic, there's kind of an idea that there's a ceiling. Where, of course, you know very large amounts of the infrastructure runs the internet, but using Python. So you can kind of say to a kid, look, print hello, world, and then there's no – Stumbling block between you and doing real professional work in the real world. Um, so mm-hmm. we do, we do love Python, and of course, the Pi and Raspberry Pi is pi- is is the Pi and Python. Um, yeah, that's where we got our name from. Uh, we we do even yeah. ten years in, we do still love it.
2: So you heard cool. it here first. Um, Python is voodoo.
1: Yes, that's it. Well, no, no Java is voodoo.
2: <laughs> Java is voodoo, right. And I've written
1: a lot of Java. I've written a lot of Java code. I've never done very much .NET, um, but I've done a lot of Java. And, and you know, there is, and it's a powerful language, right? But it's got its weaknesses, as, as a, specifically as a teaching language. Um, mm-hmm. It's got weaknesses because, it, philosophically to me, it doesn't feel like a great opening gambit to a kid to say, you're not going to understand these nine lines of code, but you've got to type them in anyway, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, as someone who, so like uh, my first programming experience, I think we've written about it before on the on the website, is we had an Amstrad CPC464, you know, that wow. old uh, green screen tape deck with lots of multicolored uh, keys. And yeah, just tapping away with basic and getting a person to appear on screen and move across the screen and stuff. Yeah, That's, only uh, you
2: could do that. I never managed it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but that was copying it from a book. But then you copy it from a book, you change a couple of numbers, you run it again. Oh, that's that's how that affects it. You know, that's it's the tinkering. You need to be a tinkerer when you first start out. You need to be able to tinker. And like Evan said, you know, as a .NET dev, I can tell you for now, if you want to write a hello world app, which for Squidges benefit and for some of the listeners who aren't developers, that is just an application. When you start it, it writes out to the screen the word hello a comma, a space, and their world. And sometimes it doesn't have a comma, sometimes it does. It's There's no real canonical hardcore example, but it's just those two words with a space in it. And to do that in C-sharp, in dot .NET, you're talking 11, 12 lines of code. And like Evan said, you have to ignore all of this magic. Just ignore all of that. Just look at this one line that says Console. line hello world. Whereas, yeah, in Python, it is print. I think, is it print or printf? See that's how oh, little print. I know about.
1: Just print. Oh, well, there you go. Print. Hello world. There you go. Um, ro- there you go. controversially Python three. It's print hello world with with brackets because print has gone from being a keyword to being a fu- to being effectively a function, um, and so you've, you've Python three's grown brackets. For a long time, I kicked quite hard against you know the the transition to Python three uh, for that reason. Right? It's like what are the brackets for? You know, or why do I have to teach people what a function is before they can print mm-hmm. something on the screen? Right, um, yeah. but you know, it's it's fine. I've I, I've come I've come to terms with it. It's it's okay. <laughs> we do ship Python two and Python three on, on Pi, even though Python two is technically obsolete. But it's funny you mentioned the CPC because that was the the machine I didn't own, but that I had a lot to do with as a kid because my friend chap uh, called um, Richard May, who's um is now a senior developer at Rebellion, um in in, in Oxford. Uh, yeah, they he and his brother had. Uh, uh, oh, 6128, So the very high end of the uh, of the CPC family. And so, yeah, either I was programming on a BBC Micro at home, or I was programming on a CPC around at their house. And they're lovely, they're lovely machines, right? They had a really nice dialect of BASIC, and really very usable. Um, there's I've heard somebody who described them as kind of like a like a superior, slightly superior kind of re-implementation of the BBC Micro concept. Two or three years later, on kind of mid mid-1980s rather than early 1980s, and Z80 rather than 6502. But they're lovely machines, and a nicer color palette. I mean, if there's one thing I always like used to lust after about the CPC is they had a proper, I know maybe you were using a green screen monitor, but the people who had a color monitor, um, they had a proper color palette where the BBC Micro really didn't. And so, yeah, the games or the machines were about the same level of performance. The games always just looked so much better um, on, on the CPC hardware.
0: Mm. well we were unlucky in that we only had the green screen version um
1: we had a lot of different colors of green different shades of green so that was that was good yep,
0: yeah yeah i am tempted to uh, track another one down i think we went to a retro video games fair recently and saw one and it was like 25 pounds mm. and i had to stop myself from going i need to buy it now because i've got nowhere to put it but mm. i'm sure i would have found somewhere you know
1: well you've got this room that you're in there you know uh... oh,
0: that's a good point yeah that's a good point yeah <laughs> Okay. I um, just to, uh, just to one more thing about Python is we talked about how easy it is to get started, but um, I would venture a guess that something like 80 to 90% of the uh, artificial intelligence slash machine learning is done in Python as well. Mm-hmm. So it's got this ridiculous, easy to get into that entry. Uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? The, the barrier for entry. to entry. That's the one. Thank you. Screens. The barrier to entry is incredibly low, but like you said, Evan, there's no, there's no upper ceiling. You can go as far as machine learning, which is different from artificial intelligence. The only reason I mention it is because for some people, artificial intelligence and machine learning are synonymous, but they are actually slightly different. But yeah, you can go as far as that. You can just do text stuff. A friend of mine, uh, Jay Miller has written a website rendering engine, um, entirely in, uh, Python. A couple of my friends have written games in it. You can literally go almost anywhere with Python. It's, uh, it's kind of ridiculous, really, just how useful it is. Unvoted. Mm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, so uh, I do remember uh, reading a little bit uh, when the when the Raspberry Pi came out originally. Uh, the, I think it was you or someone at the Raspberry Pi Foundation that said that the original idea is to bring computer science back into schools, and we've kind of touched on that. But like, uh, how do you feel about how? This, this project that you started has been kind of adopted from everyone, from everyday computer users, like we talked about earlier on, you know, these businesses who are rushing out, go get a Raspberry Pi kit and set it up because you do your work on that, to developers, tech heads, video game users, hardware and software tinkerers, that kind of thing. How do you feel about all of that? Like everyone's kind of like jumped on it and gone, this is amazing, let's do it.
1: It's weird, right? Um, I mean, we've sold pretty much 32 million units now uh, of Raspberry Pi, which is a lot of computers, right? Um, And, you know, it's more than there are CPCs. It's roughly 10 times as many as there are Amstrad CPCs. I do know all these numbers. I have all these numbers in my head. (laughs) Um, uh, So, and our original goal had been 1,000. Right. The original goal would be make a thousand, get them to the hands of the right thousand kids. Not the kind of like um unstructured thing that happens now where everyone buys them. We thought we'll just make a small number and actually pretty much maybe even give them away, you know, go and get some charitable funding and give them away to kids, um, to try and get them excited about, about applying to university. Um, so it's kind of weird, right? Um, but this 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 has become it's kind of gained a life of its own. Obviously the the um, the community's big. The organization's big. We've got a couple of hundred people working for Raspberry Pi, right? I mean, it's a it's a substantial my bit. So Raspberry Pi Trading, the commercial bit that I uh, run, is about seventy people. Uh, the foundation, so the, you know, we're a not for profit. Um, so the foundation, which does the charitable work, is about one hundred and thirty people. Um, so yeah, these are big. They're big numbers. And it, it's lovely, it's lovely to see. And of course, the the platform itself is very different from the, you know, both the hardware and the software. The platform itself is very different from, from, from what we were putting out in 2012. So it's been a good, it's a good journey. It's the longest I've ever done anything. I mean, I've never done any, I've never been involved in a continuous decades worth of, uh, I'm, I'm not really old enough to have done more than one more decades worth of stuff but yeah it's it's great I mean it's lovely and you still see I mean you still get particularly in the current climate where there's a lot of kids learning from home um, you people send you pictures or tweet pictures of their kids and it's that it's that picture of the kid and you see it we've got lots of them lying on their stomach on the um, living room floor, looking up at the telly with a Raspberry Pi in front of them, like I would with my BBC Micro. Um, that's quite—it's quite evocative of like uh, of, a, of a of a time. Uh, and it's 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 good. It's good. I mean, kind of the university application numbers, which is kind of the 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 raw, raw kind of integer that we watch. Those have vastly improved over the time we've been doing this. And we think we're not the only people who've contributed to that, but we think we've been part of that. But actually it's those kind of soft things, the stories and the pictures um, that are really, when we have a, we say when we have a, a tough day, when we have a hard day, um, it's those that are good at keeping us going. It's those that we kind of lean on a bit to say, hey, you know, it is worth staying up late and working on this bug, or, you know, it is worth, you know, uh, hauling ourselves over to this conference um, because, you actually see the pictures of kids enjoying it. That's awesome.
0: That's awesome. awesome. Yeah, um, yeah. I may have to. Uh, that's it. I'm going to have to start teaching the kids how to. Yeah. Program. And yeah how old like are how said, old how old are they? So uh, seven and eleven. Oh, that's so perfect. yeah, right. Perfect age. I think when we got our Amstrad, I would have been about six or seven. So yeah. works out about right. And if I can, if I can be learning Python at the same time as them, then we can all go on this journey together. You know. Yeah. Yeah,
1: you know, and you've got to have something. I certainly found for me with Python. I was for a long time. I was a uh, I was a, a C as a scripting language guy, so I used to use C as my scripting language, uh, which is a horrifically inefficient way of of, of writing <laughs> uh, of, of writing scripts. And then I I was, look. I have to learn Python. That's about twelve years ago. I'm like, look, I have to learn Python now, but I couldn't learn it until I had something to do with it, until I had an application for it. And so what I did was uh, the next thing I had to do. I said, right, I'm going to do that in Python. And then, very—it's such an easy language to learn, very quickly. I I kind of became confident with it, but yeah, it's great. It's great if the thing that you're going to do is teach kids. That's even—that's even better.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah. I mean, you never know. There may be the future of um, of machine learning or some kind of anything. You, anyone can do this. So why not, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what about? um, So one of the great things about the Raspberry Pi, right? There are so many wonderful. Open source projects are bad, right? I feel like this is becoming more of a programming conversation. But even so, <laughs> um, for instance, one of the other Raspberry Pi's I have in my house is a DNS-based ad blocker using wow. Pi-hole, right? Yeah, There's that 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 to me is amazing, right? Somebody's gone, hey, you can hook this up to your network, have it as a filter so that all the ads and tracking stuff gets killed off before you even get it onto your network. Brilliant. But um, but what are some of the 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 best sort of open source things that you've heard of? Um, when people have said, "Hey, Evan, did you know I could do this with it? And look at this."
1: Yeah. Well, this is so. This was this was you know the whole thing about surprises with Raspberry Pi. People using Raspberry Pi as a, an actual consumer as an actual um, uh, consumer product, doing a you know not programming it, um, using it to do a kind of pre-cam thing was something we never we never anticipated. So. Um, you mentioned Pihole. That's a big thing, right? You've got a lot of people using Pihole in their households now to, to, you know, to avoid having to download adverts. Uh, you mentioned home theater, home theater PC it makes an incredibly powerful home theater PC. You know, Pi4 can do, um, I uh, can do UHD, can play UHD content. Uh, your retro gaming, obviously, is a big one. You, you've always had uh, all the way through Raspberry Pi. You've always had people uh, building emulators for it and seeing what platforms. And every every platform has generally tended to push forwards which architectures you could. Uh, emulate you go from oh i can just about emulate a 1980s machine to i can emulate an early 90s machine to now i can emulate the playstation and so that's the thing and i guess you know probably what's evolved over time is it's probably moved away from everyone building their own emulators to people using platforms like lacquer and um uh, and retro so people using pre-built images uh, for these things that takes a little bit of the and that's wonderful for us because on some level you might think we'd be saying well you know we want people to To have the experience of building their own software, but actually, that's not how we see it. That's not how we see it at all. You know, it's fantastic if a kid starts using a Raspberry Pi to emulate retro game a retro game console, but it's still sat there in their bedroom. It's still sat there in their bedroom. It's still programmable. Um, And this is back to the thing about this not. This not supposed to be taking your medicine. This is not supposed to be good for you. Um, This is supposed to be fun with the side effect that you maybe you'll maybe you'll learn. And not everyone has to, right? You know, if you sell thirty two million of something, if one percent of the people. Who uh, you get your platform? Use it for what we intended it for. That's still three hundred thousand people.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's there's huge numbers, and that's something I didn't know going into this was just how big those numbers are.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's vast. Um, we did six hundred and just got the numbers in. We did six hundred twenty thousand units in March. You know, the rate wow. is just incredible. We build these oh. in Wales, right? So you can go over to the factory, um, and you can see these things coming off the line and they're very obviously they're just streaming through these machines. And they're very obviously coming off and you're just pie, pie, pie. I think it's one about one every two or three seconds. Um wow. and they're really you know, it, it it adds up. It's crazy, right? Um, you know, just just those numbers, you know, a day's volume. Yeah, if you think it's a thousand, if you think six hundred thousand in a month, it's twenty thousand a day. Pretty much, we're doing. If a thousand was our original dream volume, we're pretty much doing our original dream volume every hour uh, at this point, which is nuts. Wow,
0: that is that is impressive. Um, We talked a little bit about uh, retro games there and emulation and stuff. Is this now? Obviously, there's this whole grey area of you know. Running the games that you don't legally own and stuff, which I'm not going to talk about, and the grey area of how do you prove you are and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've been using a Mega Drive emulator to uh, to actually help me develop a Mega Drive game, mm. um, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and this is again another possible use for the the Raspberry Pi, right? So like the the environment I'm using, unfortunately, is based in Java. It's a I write it in C, I run a Java make file, and it pops out a .rom file at the end of it, and I can throw that into my emulator. I could build, test, and run on the same machine for (laughs) this admittedly old, you know, relatively old hardware, this uh, 20, 30-year-old hardware. It's amazing, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, I've been developing... In the last few years, I've done a few BBC micro games, and I've done a, a chunk of an Amiga game. Um, the Amiga one was interesting because I was sort of asking myself, like, what could I? How much performance I know how much performance I could get out of an Amiga when I was seventeen? Can I get more performance out of it now I'm forty two? Uh, and the answer is yes, I can, which is nice because it suggests <laughs> I've learned something in my adult life. Right? <laughs> um, but um, yeah, you know, the development experience is fantastic. You know, if you're using uh, FSUAE on my Mac, um, and um, you can um, uh, you can mount a directory uh, in on the host machine as a hard drive um from your within Amigos. Uh and then you know there's no not even any upload process. You just run a make file, launch FSUAE, the o executable that you've built that you've cross-compiled. So you're not using you're not using an on-device. I did try using the on-device assembler. I tried using um, DevPack 2. And I was like, oh God, this is terrible, right? How did I put up with this when I was a child? But you know, you can cross, you know, you can use all your tools on your your Raspberry Pi or your Mac or your PC um and you can and you can cross you can cross assemble, cross-compile uh, and then run the emulator. So I think there, there are powerful, entirely legitimate uses um, for these things, uh, which is which is cool. Um, and then you have, um, you know, obviously, you know, shouldn't use these to run games you don't own. But you know, I have at least one game that I've gone out when I've wanted to run an emulation, where I've gone out and bought a copy uh, off eBay specifically so that I own it. Um, and so, you know there are still there are still ways to do this stuff um, completely legitimate.
2: And I know for me especially, I um, I, I was always amazed when Jay come around and got, oh, I've got the new one, and it's like really like credit card sized. So before I actually mention what I used it for, um, a quick question for you: Did was was the size, um, intended? So did you mean it to be that small, or was it like a happy accident?
1: Smallness smallest reduces cost, right? Because fundamentally, sooner or later, you pay for atoms. Hmm. Um, and so, and you pay for shipping. Um, so you pay for, you pay for moving weight around. You pay for moving volume around. You pay for buying atoms, particularly when those atoms are made of, you know, things like copper, which aren't cheap. Um, so the smallness was part of the, the cost reduction drive. It was also part of a robustness drive. So if you think about Raspberry Pi, what did we want it to be? We wanted it to be low cost. We wanted it to be uh, fun. Uh, we wanted it to be programmable, obviously, and we wanted it to be, um, robust. We wanted it to be something that you could – we wanted children to own it. We didn't want these to go live in a computer lab in a school. Uh, we wanted this to be something that you owned and put in your school bag and took out of your school bag. And so having a thing which was physically robust was really important to us. And obviously, smallness comes with robustness. If this thing was a foot square, if this thing was the size of an ATX motherboard, um, then you know, you're not going to be shoving that in your, computer, in, your, in, your, in your school bag every day, or if you did, it would rapidly break.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's just some of that I thought of this morning. The um, one of the things that I've done with it is I, I've always wanted my own arcade machine, Right. Mm-hmm. just to get all the bits and build it, or you know, whatever. And I found um, I, had, I had a Raspberry Pi. It was a Raspberry Pi three. I want to say three B. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I had one of them, and then I was having a look online, and then someone. A friend of mine pointed me out. There's a website where you can get like a desktop arcade kit, Mm. right? And that runs on Raspberry Pi.
1: So Uh, was this PiCade? Is this this the thing
2: called? I have a PiCade. Yeah.
1: This is our buddies in. This is our buddies, uh, 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 Paul, Paul Beach, and John Williamson in um, uh, in Sheffield, uh, Pimoroni, and that product has been that. It was another one of these. Wow, people are actually building. People aren't just running pre-cam software on this now. People are actually building consumer products. Mm. Oh. yeah, we love... Um, Paul actually designed a logo for us. We ran a logo contest in 2011. So Paul's introduction to the Raspberry Pi, that kind of that kind of iconic Raspberry logo, the kind of geometrical Raspberry logo, that was Paul. And then about a year later, after we'd launched, they then founded Pimoroni, And they're now one of our biggest resellers, and they produce a lot of really nice accessory hardware for us.
2: Mm. Yeah, so yeah. I, it, it took me... Oh, must have been about five hours to build the damn thing. I'm, I'm not good at building. Um, <laughs> pulling up cables and Watching this tutorial on YouTube that I got linked to to try and build it, so I had all these cables, all these things doing, and me being me, nothing's perfect. So I, The screen's a little bit wonky. I had to put a foot on the bottom because I screwed a few of them too tight and a few too loose, so it was it was a bit wonky and what have you. And I thought, right, I'll get it on, you know, I'll I'll plug it up and what have you. And what I didn't realize was I put it in, I put sorted everything, clicked it on, you know, put the power in, and then it sort of went. Right, where's the settings? at which point I've got no programming background. So I remember I was on the phone to this guy, to Jay, right? But it was on like a a video call and I said, what's this? And I put my phone up to the screen and he was telling me how to do this over a video call because I didn't have a clue. But once I got sorted and I got some some ROMs of things that I already owned because I've I'm I'm a bit of a collector, so I didn't I can like see lot a little
1: of bit, bit of your collection in the background there on the video. Yeah, that's um
2: <laughs> that's that's all the new stuff though. The, the the shelf that you can't see behind this divider as well, my retro stuff is. Um but yeah, once I got that going, I was I was playing things like Resident Evil on the PS one with mm-hmm. an arcade stick. I was I was playing some of the more classic um Genesis games like Streets of Rage. That was awesome. that's awesome on an arcade stick. Um and you sort of beat him up. And some some of the more weirder titles on an arcade stick, just because I could, just to see how it was. And I failed miserably, but loved every second of it. you know.
1: Well, it's good. Could you mention Streets of Rage? Because Streets of Rage is penciled in for volume two of uh, for volume two of Code the Classics. Oh. Yeah. yeah, I've got some great graphics. Ooh. I've got some great graphics for it.
0: What's great about that we have is uh, we've, I've actually seen this little cottage industry of, uh, you know, you were mentioning the, the pie hole there. The, these retro game fairs that Squidge and I have been to, there's actually people selling the prefabbed kits. Yes. Like we've already loaded it full of emulators. Plug your USB in to load your games on. It's already fabricated and built. Just take it home with yes. you. Like this whole industry has been sort of created and
1: that, and, around it, and that's as exciting for me. You know, the the businesses that grow up around Pi are as exciting for me as the kids who as the kids who learn to code uh, on it, because you know it's it's you know we've all got to we all got to earn a living, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and we've given quite a lot of people we've given quite a lot of people an opportunity, I think, to to build businesses. We've given quite a lot of people who were building hardware before the ability to become more kind of software company. You we've know, got a number of people, particularly. Um, People use it as another canned application. Is People use them as thin clients. I mentioned mm. Citrix earlier for, you know, for connecting to, uh, to, to a remote Windows PC. And uh, you have a number of companies in that area who are now selling bundles with Raspberry Pi in them who were previously having to make their own hardware in order to have... They were really software companies, but they were making their own hardware in order to have something to run their own software on. We I mean, have kind of taken these companies and kind of freed them up from the obligation mm. to build hardware so they can concentrate on what they're really good at. It's, it's, it's exciting
0: it really is it really is you talked just then uh just earlier on about uh code the classics volume two may potentially have streets of rage penciled in um but obviously code the classics volume one has uh recently been released i know it was kind of it was uh announced just before the christmas period and we're a couple of months after that now so uh you know, and it is available to buy. I have, I have uh, ordered my version, my copy of it, because, you know, I can use this as an excuse to teach kids yeah, to program. Right. right? Let's make a video game. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, could you tell us a little bit about the um, about the book itself? Well,
1: it's another. It's a little bit. It's another uh, callback to the nineteen eighties, right? Uh, we didn't just have programmable computers. We had books with type in computer games in them. Uh Osborne obviously did a famously did a a, a quite a large series of, of type in games listing books. And they were often, you know, it's a page of code and often with with kind of this had this this system for doing variants for different platforms. So they have like a basic listing and then change these lines if you're on the spectrum, change these lines if you're on a BBC, right? So we had um uh, so these these games were out there. and They were very, very simple. You know, your skiing game would be, you know, a letter going down the screen with, you know, some stars for the for the you know, the markers you've got to ski between. Um, but they were very valuable in that you they gave you a starting point. They gave you something that you could that was a can starting point that you knew was going to work. Uh, and then maybe you maybe type it in perfectly and then try and make it better, or you type it in imperfectly and learn something from the mistakes that you got out at the end of it. And really, where Raspberry Pi is the answer to this question, well. Should we have a piece of nineteen eighties like computing hardware? Um the book is an exa- is, is the answer to the question, should we have nineteen eighties like computing, uh sort of computer games, type-in books. Now, it's a more challenging it's a more challenging world, right? Because people are used to a much higher level of production values in their games. It's not an impossible hill to climb though, right? Because a lot of particularly mobile games are still conceptually very simple. Uh and so really the question was, can we take some old some of the old mechanics, you know, centipede, um, soccer, pong? And then wrap a layer of modern presentation quality around them, high quality graphics. Uh, write them in Python so the code is much more accessible than it would have been when it was in six five oh two machine code. And then see if we can um see if we can get kids interested that way. And code the classics is a I mean, it's been a vastly longer project than we were expecting. Um, but it's it's been good. Actually, it's been, I've had a chance to work with some wonderful people. I had a chance to work with, uh, I ended up writing the games myself. That wasn't the intention, but I love writing games. And so I ended up writing the games. I got to work with, um, Dan Malone, who's an old buddy of mine who I used to work for the Bitmap Brothers back in the 1990s, did the graphics for things like Speedball 2. Uh, so the graphics have quite a Bitmap Brothers kind of feel to them. Um, so we did, we did that. And I got to work with Alistair Brimble, um, for audio. And he, he did a lot of, I mean, he's a, a very prolific, even, you know, today, he's a very prolific, um, games audio guy. Um, but he did, uh, when I was a kid, I used to play a lot of Team 17 games. And he did most of the, the, the Team 17 Amiga games, that first wave of Team 17 titles up to Worms, up to the first release of Worms. Uh, he did a lot of the audio for that. So I kind of called him up and said, Hey, I'm a long time fan. Uh, would you be interested in collaborating to do these games? And so we have really, sta- we have what well, I hope is fairly plausible code. Um, we have really fantastic graphics and then we have this kind of state of the art audio, um, in there. So it was, it was fun to do. Um, I mean, it's volume one to some extent. We, we were going to do 10 games <laughs> and. Uh, we got five done, and actually the book was starting to get a bit big and thick. So we thought, well, let's put it out as two volumes. Uh, we try to keep the price down, so it's twelve quid. Um, so we, we kind of we try to make it affordable, even though you know maybe maybe come back and ask you for another twelve quid in a couple of years. Um, but it's it's great, and it was a wonderful experience. Um, and uh, i collaborated with my wife as well on on the, the text. Um, she did a certain amount of the text in the book, so uh, yeah, it was was fun. It's been well received, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, how did you go about picking the games then? Was it just a case of, if I was sitting in front of my uh, Amiga or whatever uh, now, which ones would I want to create? Or was it a case of, let's look at the best ones that were available, the biggest players, the biggest, uh, the highest uh, grossing games of like the, the early 80s? What are we, how, What was the metric for deciding on the games? It was a
1: bit of a mix. So there was obviously, there were some classics you want to cover. I don't think you could not in a book called Code the Classics. Don't think you could not do pong um, mm. so there were some there were some obvious choices um, and then I think for me it was a bit of a mix of so the book is kind of two halves it's got interviews with the teams that um, produce the original games and then it has the re-implementation so there was a little bit of an element of like teams we could get to you know if we couldn't make contact with the people who developed the originals then then it wasn't going to work for the format of the book uh, and then, but a lot of it also was like, what mechanics did I want to, did I want to explore? You know, I, I've, I've written a lot of platform games in my life and a lot of shoot-em-ups. I haven't ever, I haven't ever written a football game. And, uh, I had never written Centipede. Was, so the football game was really good fun. Um, cause I don't even really play football games, but I always found them fascinating. So you kind of, it's almost like, uh, I kind of wrote this game as my idea of what compute, what, what, my idea from watching people play. Uh, computer football games of what sensible soccer was probably like and then I put it in front of some people and they said yeah that's completely wrong. Uh, <laughs> and so the the soccer went through a substitute soccer uh went through uh went through a longer uh, iteration than anything else. Um Centipede was fascinating because the mechanic is so pure that once you've it's almost impossible to screw up. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of actually the rules for how the little pieces move were quite hard to reverse engineer. Um, but once you've done that and you've got the mechanic in, the game's basically perfect. There's there's like no tuning. It's like all of the fun of Centipede comes from the base mechanic. Um, and so that was that was kind of exciting. A, a, reverse engineering it, and B, having it suddenly just instantly pop into life and be perfect. That was a really, that was a lovely experience. Yeah, they were all they were all they are all good fun to write. I I enjoyed doing um, so. Infinite Bunner, which is our has the best it's the one with the best name. Um, infinite Bunner, which is our Frogger um, clone. Hmm. It's more of a Crossy Road if you played that. It's more of the kind of infinite runner version of uh, version of Frogger. That was that was that was just quite nice to write, just because all the different ways you can kill the rabbit uh, were, were fun to them.
0: <laughs> it was, it was, great. Zero it was a context quote of the episode. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that. So, one of my other questions about that was going to be, um, did you look at any of the, so obviously these are classic titles. Um, almost everyone who has ever wanted to write a game has probably started with one of these and re implemented it. So, I was wondering, had you looked at any of the, the, the other implementations of these games or did you just literally, so like there's a, there's a story about how, um, uh, Ed Carmack, uh, sorry, John Carmack, not Ed Carmack.
1: He's the other. He's the, he's the bizarrely other, not related Carmack, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> the lesser known Carmack. I mean, Carmacks oh, Carmack in
1: my day to day life, you know, but clearly, clearly in Texas, we <laughs> do,
0: right? <laughs> yeah. right. But yeah, there's this wonderful story about how um, John Carmack had uh, reverse engineered by playing. He was playing Super Mario Brothers three on the NES and creating a clone of it for the PC. Um, and they'd send it in. Uh, This was John Carmack, John Romero had worked on it all weekend and basically re-implemented the first level and sent it into Nintendo and said, we'd love to, you know, here's a tech demo. You've said it can't be done. We'd love to license and create a version of Mario 3 for the PC, and they sent them a a cease and desist back. Um, (laughs) But was that how you went about it, Uh, or was it a case of let's look at how other people have implemented it, or was it just a case of how would I do it if I was just... I have the video over here of the game playing. I have a game playing and I'm just going to recreate it over on this. screen.
1: I think it's just recreate it over on this screen. Start with a blank, start with an empty text file and start typing. It's always how I like to program. I I don't, I don't play nice with others. Really. I like to write my own stuff. Um, (laughs) And I'm no, I'm no John Carmack, but um, that's how I, how I like to do it. So the, um, yeah, it was interesting. They, yeah, the soccer one was the most extreme. Example of that of not even really playing soccer games and just kind of imagining what soccer might be like. The you know, sometimes you know, obviously emulation was really interesting for that, and I did run some run some versions up in emulation. One that I did that isn't in the book, but that I where I have gone and looked at the uh, looked at documentation was um, uh, Pac-Man, where there's there's a wonderful Pac-Man. You may have seen it. There's a wonderful Pac-Man memo online where someone's kind of just written about pac-man and how it works and how the different ghosts because the four ghosts have different personalities and effectively reverse engineered what the personality including a bug that one of them has that that, uh, doesn't do what it's clearly what it's intended to do so i've definitely done that i mean i did did knock up a pac-man a a few years ago uh, and that one it was very very useful to have the documentation because otherwise the ghosts it's kind of I think it's something like Pac Man, it's very hard to reverse engineer what the ghosts are supposed to be doing just by looking at what they're, looking at how they're moving around the screen. Something like Centipede is much more obvious. Um, uh, it's much more obvious. And you kind of come up with a hypothesis for how it might work and then try it, and it isn't quite right. But it's kind of the way that it's not right is obvious rather than being
2: opaque.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. With the book, then uh, they're all. Uh, uh, I think you mentioned earlier on all the games are, are then written in Python, I guess because it's so easy to get started, right?
1: Yeah, and they're they're written in Python using um, a library called uh, Pygame Zero. So Pygame is the is the wrapper, the Python wrapper for SDL. Um, and uh, but it, it's it, it's back to that boilerplate thing I mentioned earlier, where you have a, like a chunk of boilerplate code to like you know create the window, create a surface of the window, uh, run the the event processing loop to get key presses. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff which is just it's there's no value to it. It just lines the code you have to type in. Um, so, um, Pygame Zero effectively is a, is a um, wraps up, wraps up some of that and hides that from you, so you can concentrate on just writing game code. And it's been very that's been a very it's been a kind of a, a lot of the from our point of view from an educational point of view there've been a number of these programs that have happened over the last few years that have added kind of personalities almost to Python. Um, you know, sort of pre canned stuff that, that makes the, the lowers, what was already a very low barrier to entry, makes it even lower. So we're using, using Play Game Zero, and the listings are still long. So, I mean, if there's a weakness, they're not one page listings. You know, even uh, Pong, which is the simplest listing, is two to 300 lines of code. The other ones are not up in the sort of five or 600 lines of code range. So they are, it is challenging to expect. So Richard May, who I mentioned, my friend at Rebellion, he did actually type Pong in with his daughter just to prove it could be done. Um, but generally, the expectation is that people will use the book as a reference and will clone the will clone the code off GitHub. Uh, when you yeah. clone off GitHub, obviously, it comes with a lot of comments as well.
0: Sure, that makes sense. So if you if you want to learn, if you want to just see the code, go look on GitHub. But if you want to figure out what the code is doing, why it's doing it, all of the design decisions, and you know the the content where you're interviewing some of the original developers go get the book, and then you'll get this lovely ancillary, like you said, like a reference material to sit with it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, you we, we want it to not just be a disembodied game listing, and disembodied game listing is not interesting, right? So it's, it's we, the vision was always to, we want to make a coffee table book. So, you know, if you pick this when you get your copy, if you pick it up, it's, it weighs nearly a kilogram. It's, um, it, you know, it's got a foiled cover and the, the UV flash cover. The, everything's very heavy and beautifully printed. And, um, really we wanted people, we wanted this to be a, a lust, an object of lust, you know, we wanted this to be the sort of thing you would put on your coffee table, even if you aren't interested in programming, that this would be an interesting enough object that you would want to have it in your, in your life. And of course we, we give a, you can download a free PDF of this, right? Who want to have a look at it? They can download a free PDF. And there's a whole thing where almost all the publications that we do at Raspberry Pi is, free, is available free, freely. And that kind of drives us to then try and make the physical objects even more beautiful because you kind of you're competing against yourself. Uh, if you're giving away yeah. free PDFs of your stuff, you're competing against yourself. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm super pleased with how it came out. And of course, but of course, the the, the volume one thing is kind of a hostage to fortune, right? That we we do now need to do. We're kind of if you say, "Hey, this is volume one," you're kind of saying we're going to do a volume two. And we are doing a volume too, sure. but it's going to take a while.
0: <laughs> okay. So uh, what would be on your dream list of games to include? Imagine that licensing and people to contact to interview for their games and the length of the book itself is infinite and people will just be okay with that. What would be on your dream list of games um, that you would love to see people reimplement? I,
1: I, I'd love to do Doom, actually. I think that Doom is a really... Doom is, I, you kind of imagine, you know, one of the interesting things when you interview people is you get the stories about that kind of aha moment that they had where something just worked. I remember sort of playing Doom Two, and there's a kind of bit you start off in and kind of around a corner by a chainsaw and you kind of come out into this room it has got some, you've got an imp behind you, you've got, um, uh, you know, you've got, you, you come out into this room with four or five imps in and some columns looking down a corridor um, and you just kind of get this feeling of what it must have been like when Carmack got the engine running. The first time and it's like we can do this okay it's very constrained 3d environment but this looks really good and so there's there's you know doom is still you know Carmack's genius is that he was able to write an engine a day pretty much until he found the engine that he liked uh and so there's i'd love to do doom i'd love to do i think i'd quite like to do something that's kind of i'd quite like to do wipeout actually i think that wipeout is quite a nice as a ps1 technology demo uh, quite like to do wipeout. Quite like to do crash. Actually, It would be kind of thinking of things that they're in in PS1 here, Quite like to do crash. That'd be good. Um, maybe. I mean, what are we going to do? What are the games likely to be? We're going to do. I think we'll do Streets of Rage. The sort of double dragon, Streets of Rage, kind of kind of scrolling, punch them up. We'll do. I think we'll do Defender. Um, we'll do, Arcanoid, Breakout. Mm-hmm. Quite a long way through that actually. That's uh, really nice. Got, Dan's done a beautiful implementation of that. I might share some screenshots of that on social at some point. Uh, what else? Um, I'd quite like to do, um, so so. I think we're going to do pole position. We'll do a, a kind of into the screen racer. Um, the, the engine for that's really interesting. So the ones that are interesting to me are the ones that have interesting engine stories. So the. Um, but I think what we'll end up doing is we'll end up doing one more book, I think, a second volume of oh. 2D of classic 8 and 16-bit games. Um, and then I'd quite like, there are kind of two directions I'd love to take it in. One would be to do a volume of much shorter ones, you know, really constrained. So the nice thing is actually we had this kind of 500-line constraint and it's really, it's that squeeze is really nice actually because um, it stops you from going crazy with the implementation. So I'd love to do a book with 100-line, 50-line or 100-line games, be really, really constrained. So, hey, you know, there's no menu system, there's no... Lovely enough to just turn it on, bang, there's a game. I really wanted to do, I thought one would be good for this would be Pang. You played that? Um, I thought Pang would be a good, definitely worth buying a copy on eBay and emulating it on your um, retro gaming platform of choice. Um, so there are quite a lot of games that I think you could do in 50 to 100 lines, which would be fun. Um, and then I'd quite like to do one or two which are um, an entire book. on. So, like Wipeout, for example, you could imagine doing a 200 page Wipeout from scratch. Book, you know, just literally right. Let's learn how to render triangles, and then let's re- learn how to do two D. Ge- let's learn how to do three D geometry, and then let's mm. write ourselves into the screen racing game. Uh, you know, so either do you know, wipe out or crash or something, uh, as as just a single book. Um, but I think we have probably one more book in the current format in us, um, and we're we'll working on the to that now.
0: That's cool. That's cool. I do like that because, like, um, one of the things in a previous career, so straight out of uni, I did computer science at uni, straight out of uni. No computer science jobs, so I ended up being a teacher. And it's that difficult thing of, "Hey, we're going to learn about triangles. Uh, why? What? Are, what am I going to do with triangles? Well, let me show you. You want to be a game, dev? Everything's a triangle. And I would show them like a rudimentary 3D engine. And look, this is where I'm working out all of these calculations and stuff. So having that like a uh, real world example of here's some weird trigonometry that you need to sort of that you need to know because it's been decided that you need to know it. Well, here's the actual application of it, which it always gets around that question of, but so when am I going to use it? we are using it right now? You know? Yeah. And then make this
1: relevant to me. Make this relevant to me is not an unreasonable demand um, from, yeah. from a, from a, a learner. Um, and you know, you can be a scientist. I mean, you, there uh, there's a group of us for whom now we're going to learn about triangles. Now we're going to, to learn about if statements. Now we're going to learn what a variable is. Will is enough, and I'm definitely in that group. Um, but we have to acknowledge that for the vast majority of learners, that's not enough, and you have to make it relevant to them. And kind of games is a way, I think, of making mm. um, computer programming relevant to people because there is enormous aspiration among young people to be involved in the games industry because they're consumers. If you consume a lot of content, just like a lot of young people want to be in a band, a lot of young people want to be in a games company, but there's historically not been a ladder there was in the 80s. But then there was a period where there was no ladder you could climb. Up. So it's why we published Wireframe magazines. So we uh, produce a magazine called Wireframe, which is um, every other week. It's a 60-odd page magazine every other week about game gaming. And it's a it's a great game, but I believe it's a great games magazine. But what we have in the middle is 64 pages, and what we have in the middle is a 16-page insert, which isn't about consuming games. It's about creating games. Uh, it's even on different paper. It's on even a, a different paper stock. Um, so people know this is the bit that's about, about making games. Try to try to build that ladder for people. Trying to kind of engage with the gaming community, but build that ladder so people can stop just being. It's still great to be a consumer. I'm a great consumer of games, um, mm. but it's also nice to uh, to give people a ladder.
0: Yeah, that's that's always the important, the the hardest part, I think, of getting a a job in any kind of development, web development, application development, um, games development, any kind of computer related development. Sort of write the code and make the thing job is. On your very first attempt to get that job, you'll be told, Well, what experience do you have? Well I have an urban experience. Well you need to get the experience. But you can't get the job without the experience. You can't get the experience without the job. So doing this kind of thing where it's like, hey, go make let's make this thing together. At least then you can say, Well, yeah, I took you know Eben's tutorial on how to make I don't know, a wipeout or a centipede, and I changed it. So now it's like this. And I understand why the why the changes that I made work this way. And I can show you, and that's always if you don't have the experience. If you have a portfolio, a list of things that you've noodled around with and built, then that makes total sense, yeah. right?
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I love the I love the idea of uh, games in fifty or a hundred lines. I wrote one a number of years ago. Now it was my first attempt at making a game in HTML five JavaScript, um, and it's called Runaway. And literally, there is a character on screen that you control. That you control, sorry, and a a sort of baddie that wants to eat you, and you just literally run away from him. It's like a two D top down. (laughs) um, You just literally run away, and um, the more you move, the more fatigued you get, and the less that you move, the you know the faster you can then run away. You can kind of sprint away, but uh, you both get fatigued at different rates, so you need to obviously keep this this uh, move a little bit, then wait, move a little bit, then wait, and then leg it, or something. That sounds, oh yeah, I certainly great. will, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I certainly will. Um it it I think it's loads of fun and it's always a nice little challenge when I meet a new developer. And I'll send them the link and go, because there's a little timer in the corner and it stops when you get eaten. And it's like, How long did you last? And I think the, the the average is about sixty seconds before game over, even after I explained the rules, which was don't run, don't constantly run, run for a little bit, then stop, because otherwise you'll get fatigued. The user interface isn't brilliant, but yeah. You could totally do some. What I'm getting at is, you can make a game that is silly and small and stupid, and like you say, jump straight into it in 100 lines or less. Because I know, because I've done it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And even then, with that one, you don't need any kind of super duper hardware. It's a web browser. You know, that's all you need. Yeah. <laughs> one thing. One thing, that's, one
1: thing that's been a lot of fun, not not interactively, recently. There's a, a chap called There's a chap called Dom Padraic who's um, Uh, developed a a Twitter account called BBC Microbot. I don't know if you've seen this, which you can tweet a BBC basic program to, and it will run it and then send you back a video um, of (laughs) from sort of 30 seconds, a four-second video from 30 seconds in. Um, And people are doing the most incredible things with this, right? Because you've got a 280-character limit. Um, I did um, John Conway's Game of Life, the cellular automaton um, for it. But people have done some, since then, have done some incredibly impressive stuff with it. Um and it's amazing what you can do in 280 280 characters. And kind of following that kind of following that chain, a lot of the people who've been doing that then have other interactive ones. There's somebody who's been doing some great ones who has a game called Atman, which is a ten line BBC basic program which is basically Pac-Man. It's basically a mode seven BBC BBC basic Pac-Man where you have a little at character that, um, that runs around a that, that runs around a maze and is pursued by I think pursued by PAM signs. Uh, it's fun.
0: Wow! Yeah, just uh wow. just having a quick look through some of the tweets, and they are they're amazing. There's some that are just like counters, and there's one with the Death Star, and uh, one with like a tessellation style, <laughs> um, Escher style print going on that's moving. There's Sweet. all sorts. There's like a, a Maze Runner, all sorts. It's, it's brilliant. It's very cool. I'm gonna have to give yeah, that it's a definitely,
1: go. definitely, definitely. Uh, <laughs> It's and people have done all sorts of incredible stuff in it. Don was saying that people have been doing kind of political slogans. South Americans doing like political propaganda in it, like political slogans. Uh, uh, it's I think <laughs> or something. There was a crop of Uruguayan political slogans appearing.
0: Wow, wow, that's that's really cool. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. So you you. You've mentioned. You see, you've already answered one of my questions, which was, did you create your own art and music assets for these games? And you did, so that's that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, no, awesome. Uh, like I say, I've already got my copy of Cla- Code the Classics on order anyway, so I'm looking forward to to getting that and figuring out how to get Python running because that's the other thing as well, right? We mentioned that um, Python is one of the things that the Raspberry Pi runs, but you can install Python on your desktop, your laptop. Yeah. Whatever.
1: Yeah. And that's really important. There's a chapter about that in the you know, none of this stuff's supposed to sell you a Raspberry Pi. People should totally go buy a Raspberry Pi. But um none of what's really important is none of the stuff we create is marketing for the Raspberry Pi. It's just, you know, almost everything we do where we can. You know, not if it needs interfacing to the real world, which is where Raspberry Pi is very, very strong, but almost everything we can if it's pure software, we work quite hard to make sure you can run it on the hard because Raspberry Pi is a low cost computer, but nothing's cheaper than the computer you already own. Um, And so there's a whole chapter in Mm. how do you get the tools installed on Mac? How do you get the tools installed on Windows? How do you get the tools installed on Ubuntu?
0: That's cool. Mm. That's cool. I like that. I like that. So what about uh, one of the things we didn't do, which we usually do, um, which I'd like to do if that's okay, is we talk about any video games we've been playing recently. We usually do this at the top of the show, but I wanted to get straight into that uh, discussion about the Raspberry Pi and Code the Classics because it's such an interesting topic to me. So... um, what we used to do is we go around the around the around the group and just talk about the games that we've been playing and whether you know whether we have been playing any games or what the games are and uh, whether we recommend that other people check them out. So uh, I don't know. Do you want to go switch or shall we have uh, Evan go I'm first? The guest. Cause go he's first. The guest.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, I, well, yeah. so I have a two-year-old child uh, and a computer company to run, so I'm I'm not getting I'm not getting my my <laughs> allowance at the moment of computer games. Um, I've. I mean, I've been doing a bit of retro gaming. I've gone back and gone be, been going back and playing Amiga games quite a lot, actually. I think there's there's a wonderful back wonderful back catalogue. I mean, Team Seventeen, for example, have an amazing back catalogue on the uh, on the Amiga. Where these games still hold up today as being really, really enjoyable, really enjoyable games. So I've done a little bit of that. I've been playing a lot of Kerbal Space Program. Um, I'm a big KSP fan because I'm a big uh, I'm a big space nerd. Um and uh, Randall Munro, the, the X K C D guy has a wonderful graph of he used to work for NASA. He has a wonderful graph of how much he understood about orbital mechanics over time, from his birth to the present day, and he's got like, you know, a little bit as he learned stuff at school, and then did a physics degree, that goes up a bit, and then worked for NASA, that goes up a bit, and then bought copies of Kerbal Space Program, and it just goes through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> and I love I love KSP. So so I, I I've been playing been playing a fair bit of that recently. And then just kind of bits and pieces of of mobile stuff, you know, tower defense games, um, a game called Alto. They come across this game called Alto, uh, Alto's Adventure, which is, a, it's kind of a snowboarding game. It's a South American themed snowboarding game, which is just this incredibly trippy kind of, uh, it's just this incredibly trippy calm kind of constantly sliding down a hill surrounded by llamas. Um, it's just, just out, that's beautiful. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to make some time to play dreams or to use dreams. An old buddy of mine, Alex Evans, um, who I went to university with, um, who co-founded Media Molecule. That's been kind of his labor of love for the last decade. Uh, and it's another one which is kind of as much about creativity as it is about consuming. Um, so I'm kind of hoping to maybe have a little bit of time to do dreams over the next little while. Um, I have to say lockdown appears to be busier than not lockdown. And so, 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 <laughs> it's kind of, um, uh, that that prospect's receding into the distance. But that's 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 where I'm at the
0: moment. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Uh what about you, Squeeze? What ah, have you, you been first. playing recently? Okay, uh well, um I've finally got around to playing Undertale. I've heard a whole mm-hmm. heap of wonderful things about it. Um and I'm almost finished with it. Just got the last the last boss to to kill off. That's on my Nintendo Switch. And yeah, I've been playing that. I've got uh we're playing Zero AD a lot, which is a free open source um, Age of Empires-like RTS that was started as closed source, as like a recreation of Age of Empires 2, but is completely open source, which runs on the Raspberry Pi, by the mm. way. Um, so totally check that out. That's that's loads of fun if you're into real-time strategies. And it's a gorgeous game as well. I mean, you've played it, haven't you, Squid? It's fully yeah. 3D and like... One of Squidge's first notes to me, he sent me a text as soon as he started playing. It was like, oh my goodness, I can zoom in on the clouds. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, why not, right? And other than that, it's been little uh, more retro titles. I've got, uh, we've talked about it a lot, but I've got a device called an RG350, which runs Open uh, OpenDignux, I think, um, which is this wonderful tiny little Linux kernel with a wonderful little uh, user interface on there. And if you're playing uh, things like Canon Fodder and uh, Wolfenstein's reading on this tiny little handheld that has the same sort of form factor as a uh, Game Boy Advance. Is that mm. the right one, scratch Yep. Yeah. So it's just like noodling around with smaller games like that uh, at the moment for me. But uh, yeah. What about you, Squidge? Where have you been?
2: My, my time's been flipped between I'm going through the the latest DLC for Borderlands 3 because I haven't had a chance yet. I'm about halfway through that, I think. When I'm not doing that, I'm playing Streets of Rage on a Mega Drive. I've got hooked up to the TV behind me. Streets of Rage is, is my favourite. Streets of Rage 2 is good, but it's not as good as the first one. And then um, when I'm not doing that, I am playing, not exactly a retro game, but I'm playing Dynasty Warriors 7 on uh, the PC on Steam because it's my favourite Dynasty Warriors. It's, you can't over So, you don't get experience, you've got to build up like your strength, defense, and speed by doing stuff. So, you get better by playing it, and there's a a whole heap of characters you've got to level up. So, it's it's tons of gameplay there. But that's what my time has been split between. It's been split between modern day beat em ups to old school beat em ups.
0: Good man, good man. I do remember I asked you a few days ago, Squidge, uh, Streets of Rage one or Streets of Rage two, and your answer was yes. <laughs> it certainly was, yeah.
1: I have decided I have to, decide, I have to whether to steal myself and buy the hardware to play Half Life Alex. Um, I mean, I don't mm. want to re- reward Valve really uh, for them, <laughs> um, but on the other hand, it's more Half Life content, right? <laughs> um, and I need to go back. I need to go back and, go back and play Black Mesa all the way through. Now they've done Zen. Uh, I do need to go back play mm. play play that because I mean Black Mesa is one of these amazing. You, know, you talk about about how do people get experience? Well, you've got a bunch of people who just decided to sit down and make Half Life, but you know using well modern technology. Although you know even Source is now uh, is mm. now rather long mm. in the tooth. But um, I, I did enjoy. I played all the way through when they just got to Lambda Core before they did the Zen uh, the Zen stuff. And I like to. What I really want to see is if Zen's any good because kind of Zen's by far the weakest bit of the original Half-Life, and I want to see Mm. if they manage to find find a way to make Zen with long jump and stuff. If they manage to find a way to make Zen
0: um, uh, enjoyable, I think that's another key thing you picked up on there about the uh, the engines for some games being available for free and getting your experience by just going out and making it right. Like, uh, don't let someone tell you you can't do it, right? Don't let someone tell you you can't do it, just go and do it, right? And then when you get to a point where you've advanced enough that you want to know a little bit more, go, go read some of the engines that already exist that are out there for free. Like, uh, like you mentioned Half Life, um, I believe it's Half Life Source, you know, you can download that, uh, the, the Doom engine, although the Doom engine is very much for hardcore developers. <laughs> um, you know, I've got a number of years of experience under my belt and I read it and go, I don't know what's going on here because there's some serious <laughs> 3D maths going on and some serious um, actual hardware um, optimizations going on. And that's why one of the things I love about the Doom engine, I'm just taking a slight sidetrack, as a developer, I love to tell people this, is that um, the Doom engine needs very little doing to it to port it to a new device. I mean, I don't like to talk about they reached the port of Doom for the Switch because that's not actually a port. That's a rewrite in Unity, which is why it's horribly broken. But, um, you know, Doom itself, the reason why people say, oh, I can run it on my camera. I can run it on my calculator. I can run it on my fridge is because the code is really well written and it's all uh, segregated correctly. Uh, we talk about uh, certain principles in, in development, and one of them is, uh, the uh, the segregation of concerns. You you only have the bit that draws the video on screen as this is the chunk of code that vit- draws the video on screen. You don't link them together, which is uh, and and the code itself is wonderful to read as a developer. That's my incredibly nerdy bit over. <laughs> well,
1: John, um, John Carmack is is a fascinating guy to read on development. I mean, he has some wonderful. Um, recently, uh, he's kind of I think he's probably become more of a convert to the kind of functional. Uh, the kind of functional idea of how programming should be done over the years. I had a wonderful sort of thing about, um, recently about inlining, the idea that kind of all of your game code, you you kind of, uh, people conditionalize you. People end up with complicated control flow. And that you really, you should sort of see your, you know, for a game, the right metaphor is the big one big function almost that just goes through and does kind of does everything. And of course, you can segregate it, but the idea that you have this kind of like branch, complicated branching control flow, he's he kind of argues against it kind of on the grounds that you should never, you should do everything every frame because what, what matters in the computer game is, is what the worst frame. There's no point in optimizing your code to make the best frame faster. It's what is your worst frame like? Because if your worst frame takes 1% longer than um, a 60th of a second, then you're going to drop a frame. Um, and so the idea of, of of doing everything all the time, even when you don't need to, because that then disciplines you to make it. It, it diverts your attention to the worst frame rather than rather than optimizing the best frame. Um, very very interesting guy. Very very clever guy, and, and sort of thinks quite profoundly. I think about about some aspects of programming. I mean, I'm not sure you'd necessarily hire him to to, to design your nuclear reactor control system, but certain aspects of <laughs> he's he's a, he's a fascinating guy to study and to mm-hmm. emulate also apparently egoless mm-hmm. the, the, the story about him is that he is somebody who if he has an idea of how to do something and you go up to him and you explain a different way of doing it that he prefers that you can honestly convince him is better uh, then he'll instantly flip over and start advocating your way of doing things rather than his way of doing things which is very very unusual among, among talented engineers. Mm-hmm.
0: It is very unusual. I do love, I do love all of that stuff. Um, there's a series of books again going on, nerdy in computer programming. There's a series of books called the, the game engine black books, which are mm-hmm. the uh, Fabian. Oh my days! I can't remember the guy's surname. There's a there's a there's a gentleman who takes the open source ID, uh, the open source ID engine, so like Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, that kind of thing, Doom 3, and just tears the code to pieces, and and he's written a five thousand word book about. Each one of these, maybe not 5,000 words, but 400, 500, 600 word book about each of these engines and like the design decisions that went into it, how it works, uh, the hardware that was available at the time. So like Doom has some very specific, um, very, very specific hardware tuning for 286 and 386 processors that is still relevant now, but was more relevant Mm -hmm. then. It's a wonderful read. But yes, um, I've digressed way too much there mm. and indulged myself a little bit too much on, uh, <laughs> on, on, um, on talking about, uh, their doom and uh, source code. So, uh, thank you ever so much, Evan, for, for sitting with us and chatting with us. And we've gone way over our time <laughs> budget. So I really appreciate you sticking around. Um, awesome. Could you really quickly give us a, a quick rundown of the best place to get code the classics from? Is it go to the Raspberry Pi website and there's a link yeah, on there? Yeah. If now, you, or is if it you search be-
1: for Raspberry Pi Press, if you Google Raspberry Pi Press, you can buy it from Amazon. We make more money if you buy it directly from us. So, uh, if you search for Raspberry, if you search for Raspberry Pi Press, um, and I'll take you to the website and we'll, we'll take your money and ship you a
0: copy. Awesome. I'll put the uh, the link in the show notes. So if you're listening on your smartphone or smart device of some kind, click through to the show notes. There'll be a link in there to click through to the full show notes because I do a little bit of extra typing, extra waffling in there. Um, and there'll be a link in there definitely to check that out. I'll link to uh, Eben's uh, Twitter and the Raspberry Pi Foundation so you can go learn more about that. And uh, yeah, go do Raspberry Pi things or at least go do computer programming things, you know, learn something. Mm. Do print F hello world today and and join me in this wonderful world of doing development because it's amazing.
1: It is amazing. I can attest to that. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you
2: you very much.
0: I really appreciate it. Thank you. Intro music is Among the Stars by Muse Station Productions. Outro music is I Need You Watashi no Sabate by G.H. Spoiler break music is Spectrum Subdiffusion Mix by Phonics. Palette cleanser music is Breathe Deep, Breathe Clear by Siobhan Degay. See the show notes for more details. The Waffling Tailors podcast is a proud member of the J&J Media Network. To find out more about J&J Media, head over to jayandjay.media or check the show notes for a link.